0: Well, take with me your copy of God's Word and open up to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark will be in chapter 11 today, the first 11 verses. I don't know how it would be received exactly, but I imagine it would not be received. I told you recently that we went and bought the girls some bikes. And so imagine that I'm at the bike shop and I want to take a bike for a ride. They will usually ask for your ID, and the reason they're doing that is to make sure you don't steal the bike. I had a friend who owned a bike store, and once a very well-dressed, pressed gentleman came in and asked if he could borrow a bike or ride a bike, and after some time, and felt like a sale might be on its way, and the bike was about eight grand, he didn't have his ID on him, and he was gone with that bike, They let him go for a little ride, and he never came back. I just imagine if I was to presume that my role as a pastor meant something for the sales clerk, and I said, I need to borrow a bike. No, the Lord needs the bike. We'll return it soon enough. I don't imagine I'd get out of there with wheels. In any case, perhaps that allows us something of an angle in to this morning's passage, Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. This is God's word for us this morning. There are some passages in the Bible that are just quite famous. This is a famous passage in the Bible. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It didn't quite match the mood of the passage, but I almost named the sermon, Jesus Rides a Donkey. It had a nice ring to it. In any case, famous passages are frustrating to preach. They can be. They can be frustrating to preach because we're familiar with them, so familiar with them that it's hard to feel them. It's hard to feel them. It's hard to feel the shock that might be for us on the page. It's hard to feel the awe because the words are so familiar. And so the challenge in that case of preaching is to freshen it up isn't the right word, but to come at you from a certain angle or to get us all there together by taking us back in the story of Mark or of the Bible and, and reframing and couching and situating it, taking us out of our moment and our memories hearing the sermon preached and, and revisiting it. Famous passages can be frustrating because we're so familiar with them, we we can't feel them anymore. We know we should. But famous passages can also be frustrating because of our familiarity, because when we're so familiar with a passage, sometimes we can't hear it. In some cases, we can't feel it like we should. In other cases, we just can't even hear it right, because we've heard it preached a certain way so often, or there are certain... There are certain legends associated with the passage. Well, this is a passage that is largely misunderstood. You're going to have to follow me here. This is not a triumphal entry. (laughs) My Bible says triumphal entry. And the, the, the folks who translated the ESV and provided those headers know what they're doing. You could call it a triumphal entry, but really that is not the whole story, or even the best way in two words to describe what happens here. It is not triumphant, as it is often made to be, and it's actually not an entry, exactly. I included the entry verse, which is verse 11, which could just as well go with the next passage. But verse 11 doesn't seem too triumphal, but that's the entry. You get the idea. I hope your ears are attuned. You might be familiar with the passage, but there is good news here of a kind you might not be expecting to hear. Well, let's start in verse one. The moment we have all been waiting for. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of olives. And we'll stop there. This drawing near to Jerusalem, if we were to do a little word search on the Gospel of Mark, Jerusalem, we would find many instances of the city Jerusalem named. We'd have characters coming from Jerusalem making trouble with Jesus and in some cases with his disciples. And then we'd have a decisive course set for Jerusalem they were headed to Jerusalem. They were headed to Jerusalem. And now they are drawing near to Jerusalem. We are getting closer to Jerusalem. And this is the moment the crowd has been waiting for. Jesus has his 12 disciples with him. He also is surrounded by a gang. Maybe not the right word. He's surrounded by a crowd. Let's just use that biblical word. The word isn't used here, but there are others besides his disciples. He's surrounded by a crowd. We might call them pilgrims. They're on their way to Jerusalem for a regular feast. Several times a year, they would make their way to Jerusalem. And in this particular trek, they're making their way from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's a hot hike. It's about a dozen miles It takes you from the lowest city on earth at 800 feet below sea level, Jericho, all the way up to Jerusalem, which is 3,000 feet above sea level. This group of pilgrims is exhausted. And just as on their hike, they are cresting a hill to see Jerusalem is when the vegetation changes and the topography changes and there is a refreshing and exhilarating sense of arrival and they are arriving at their destination not just any destination but Jerusalem the city of God's king the place of God's temple where God's presence would be known where the sacrifices happened and your guilt would be forgiven It's not a perfect comparison, and I hesitate to make it. Some of you have a tradition on Sunday afternoons of retiring to the family room for a game. And that's a good time with friends and with family. For some of you, maybe not for all of you, maybe in your family, some of them are doing that and you've no interest in any case, you know what it looks like to gather around the TV and to watch a game or to watch your family enjoy the game. Now imagine a trip annually or several times a year to the Coliseum or to the court to watch your favorite team play. I grew up in the Chicago area during the Bulls three-peat era and I love my parents, but we should have gone to a game at the United Center because I would have something to tell you. There were good reasons why that was more difficult for us. But maybe you've been to a game with friends, and there's the tailgate, and there's the game, and there's the anticipation, there's the food, there's the singing, there's the family, there's the memories. And on a much larger scale, maybe that's something like what we'd have here in this crowd as they make their way to Jerusalem in those 12 miles or so in the heat seeing now the city and having arrived you can imagine the anticipation it's also the moment the disciples have been waiting for it's the moment the disciples have been waiting for since Jesus has called them about three years earlier in Galilee They left their nets, they left their families, they left their vocations and their businesses. Or their activism and their causes, and they joined with Jesus, and they've been on the road with him. And this is where they've been headed for so long, and now they've arrived. It's the moment the disciples have been waiting for since Galilee, and even more specifically, we can just say since chapter 8. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. And he got that right. And then Jesus predicted his death. And then Jesus set his course and theirs for Jerusalem. And the path has taken a nice straight way. And this has been the direction. And since chapter 8, having confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's King, to bring in God's rule, and to make everything right. Now they're coming to Jerusalem. And this is where it gets really exciting. And in a real sense, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. We've been working through the gospel of Mark. And we began in Galilee. Even before that, we began with the Father's voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. My beloved son. Even before that, Isaiah's words... Prepare the way of the Lord. A messenger will come. John the Baptist has come and his head was taken. Well, the Lord's way has been made and he's been making his way. He's been on his way and his way leads to his city. His way leads to Jerusalem. And Jesus, God's king is on his way to take his throne. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. it's the moment the world's been waiting for. You know, apart from Christ and God's word to us in the Bible, we don't know what we're actually waiting for. But who doesn't want a righteous reign? And who doesn't want a righteous king? Everyone will define righteous differently out there. But you and I know what we need. And we know what our neighbors need. Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. We need his righteous rule. We need a day when everything is right and everything is just. And Jesus will bring it. And his disciples, and we know that his entry to Jerusalem marks a big moment toward that goal. So, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for together. Now, let's get to the body of the story the ride in. The ride in. Verses 2 through 12, the, the scene slows down. You've got repetition. Jesus describing what they're to do and how it's to go. And then they go out and do it and it goes just as he said. And I remind you as we read narrative, it's not just filling up space. And it's not repetition to make us skip over the se- It's to slow us down, to watch the action and then to watch it again and to pick up. What is being revealed here? The pace slows down and the detail picks up. And we are watching Jesus' ride in to Jerusalem. And this ride is planned. It is a planned ride. Consider where Jesus sends his disciples. And he said to them, verse 2, go into the village in front of you. This is very specific. He doesn't say, "Go, go figure out where you can get. A cult. Go into the village in front of you. And then he says, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a cult tied. Jesus is giving them very specific instructions. Now, sometimes it's suggested that this is Jesus divinely ordering things. Or Jesus with divine insight, knowing where the cult will be. Or that there are some conventions involved in here in the obtaining of an animal and what they're going to say. We'll get to that in a moment. I tend to think that Jesus made arrangements. We know from other gospels that Jesus would have been in and through this place. There would be familiar names and people and relationships. And I tend to think, although it takes nothing away from his sovereignty In his divinity that Jesus made these arrangements and he has been laying the groundwork for this moment for some time in a number of ways. And in terms of these logistics, he has made arrangements for this moment. This is a planned ride. He has been anticipating it and he's made these plans and he gives them very specific instructions. That's concerning where they're to go and then what they're to get what they're to get. Immediately as you enter that village in front of you, you will find a colt, a donkey tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Well, this colt would signal to those who had their ears tuned an important point of symbolism. In Zechariah 9, 9, We have a promise concerning the Messiah, the coming king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. You and I aren't likely as familiar with our Old Testaments as some of those with Jesus on the road there. Oh, but they were, and they knew where these hot spots of promise were, and this would have been one of them. One of those things that you were trained to look for from childhood. Oh, but there's a promise even before that, all the way back in Genesis, where we were only a year ago or so. In Genesis 49, we have a promise in, in uh, Jacob's blessing of his sons to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to a vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. There is this vision here all the way back in the book of Genesis of a king that will come from the line of Judah. There's a donkey involved and a colt. He'll come to execute perfect justice. His scepter will never leave his hand. And here he is, obtaining a colt. This is a planned, not a slap together ride. These are no last minute arrangements, and some of them may be picking this up. So the planned nature of this ride is revealed in where Jesus sends them exactly and in what he sends them to obtain. and in how Jesus instructs them to obtain it. Notice here, he says, untie it and bring it. If anyone says, why are you doing this? Which you would expect could happen. Don't send me into a bike shop or a car dealership and tell me to go ahead and take a vehicle to just get on a bike. When someone says to you, why are you taking that? Here's what you're to say. The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. Now, it's just a thought experiment. If you're thinking they trust Jesus because he's the guy who walked on water, I think you're still thinking they're going to think we're crazy. But Jesus might override that and make them let us take it. But that's not how things have rolled so far. Exactly. It seems more likely to me that what we have here is... A secret password. It's like a password. Months earlier, who knows how long, a little research and maybe I could tell you about when it happened. But Jesus could have made these arrangements. This is going to happen. There's going to be one of my disciples that comes. They're going to take the colt. And when you see this happen, this is what they'll say. And you'll know that it's for me. Wink. Wink. So now let's read it with that idea of a password in mind. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street. It belonged to somebody. They tied it up. They untied it. Maybe their hearts were beating at this point. And some of those standing around and watching this happen said, what are you doing untying the colt? I mean, there would be no little protest at this kind of an a, a open, blatant theft in the middle of broad daylight. What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. That sounds like a password to me. I think Jesus laid some plans. The Lord has need of it, and will send it back. And they're hoping it works. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go right ahead. And they take it and they're off. So the plan nature of this ride and where exactly Jesus sends them and what he sends them to get, this ancient promise of a king who rides in on a colt and in how they're to obtain it all betrays Jesus' deliberate march to the cross. Jesus' deliberate movement into Jerusalem with all of his plan, plans laid And consider that to this point in the gospel of Mark, we have not seen Jesus off his feet. We've seen him sit to teach. We haven't seen him riding. Jesus isn't riding around Galilee. Jesus rides in. A statement is being made. This is preparation for a dramatic entrance. The ride into Jerusalem, this ride is planned. This ride is also impassioned. It's a passionate scene. Verse seven, they brought the colt to Jesus, but before he got on it, they put their cloak on it. That might make sense enough, a custom. Let Jesus sit on a cloak but then this next scene, this next bit of the scene is over the top. And you get a sense of the exuberance of the crowd and the sense of expectation. And this is it. We are here. And many spread their cloaks on the road. Many are taking their cloaks off and throwing them on the road like a, like a red carpet. Jesus is here and the king is here. And they believe it. He is the Christ. Christ. And they spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. They're cutting leafy branches from the fields and laying down whatever they can for Jesus' reception in Jerusalem. We've looked at how he's received, at how he rides in. And now listen to what they say as he rides in. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And this would be from Psalm 118 that they would have been singing on their approach to Jerusalem, whether he was there or not. But on this trip, the Lord is with them. Their king is riding in. And the song they've sung from that ancient psalm for so many years since their childhood and generations before them, now is being sung before the one they've long expected. Hosanna in the highest. They have such rightfully high expectations for what's about to happen. This ride-in is planned. It's an impassioned ride, dramatic. And it's also mistaken. It's mistaken. How can that be? How can it be mistaken? Because they are right, right? They're filled with joy, they're filled with expectation. They're overcome with the presence of their king, and he is the king. They aren't hoping in Rome. They're hoping in God's promises, and here's the king long promised, and their hope is in him. They're even sacrificing for him, you could say. They're laying their cloaks down. This is reverent. This is deep honor. They've obeyed him, a few of them, in going to get the cult in the way that they did. Perhaps that was a little risky, you could imagine, but they obeyed the Lord in doing it. How could they be mistaken? Well, consider what's come before to this point, and then let's consider what comes after, though we haven't gotten there yet. And we remember that every word in the Bible has a sentence, and every sentence in the Bible has a paragraph and a thought unit, and every thought and paragraph has a larger section, and every section has a book inside which it's found. And every book has a whole Bible in which it's found. Well, just looking back in the story of Mark, I find it very hard to believe that all of a sudden we have a crowd that really gets it. That we're supposed to look at the page here and join them in exactly their sense of expectation and in exactly their feelings and not observe them from more of a distance. Even with a critique and self-reflection. And I'll show you how I mean that. In the chapters before, we have had no less than three predictions of Jesus' death. And in each case, it is rejected in Peter's case in the first time. Or it's ignored. And they wrestle over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus instructs them, the first will be last. They do not understand the nature of the kingdom. They do not understand the way that the kingdom will come about. They don't understand their main problem. They don't think they need a suffering king. And the third time, which happened just recently, Jesus predicts his death. And in the next verse, they're asking him if he would do them the favor of doing whatever they ask him. I get a question like that sometimes at home from some of my family members. Christy doesn't ask me questions like that. But (laughs) I want to say I got a question like that this last week. It was great. There's a skill there that will probably sell something to someone one day. I don't know. But in any case, the disciples come to Jesus and they're asking, can one of us have the right and one of us have the left side in your kingdom? And of course, he says, you don't even know what you're asking. And friends, there will be a right and a left side of Jesus before our story is over. Not this Sunday, but before our trek through Mark is over. No, they did not know what they were asking. But they will drink the cup that is his. And they will be baptized with the baptism that's his. So they haven't gotten it. And I'm just not inclined to turn to chapter 11 and then be thrilled at how everyone gets it. So we've looked back. I mean, it was over at the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus had to sneak away lest they coronate him king. Some earthly, mere earthly, temporal king to trump Rome's rule here and now for now. No, their vision of Jesus and God's promises and kingdom is far too small. Well, that's looking back. Well, looking ahead, let me just say, we don't see this crowd again. It's often said, one of the legends about this passage, the, the famous preachy lines you hear, uh, is highlights the fickleness of the crowd. So look at the crowd. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then... And then pages later, they're saying, crucify him. They're different crowds. One's a crowd that was in Jerusalem to begin with. The next is the crowd that came with Jesus. And these were with Jesus on his way into Jerusalem. We don't see them again. And the disciples will peel off one at a time and as a group as well. My point is simply to have you come to this passage a little differently. Strip away the familiar, strip away the sentimental. It puts a little bit of a different spin. Let me put that differently. It should have us come at the idea of a Palm Sunday with kids in palm branches a little differently. And that it's not exactly the scene that we want to portray once we have the full full picture. I'll make a little application in that direction later. Of course, we're the ones who know what's going on. And so we can take these words on our lips and mean them. But they're mistaken. We've looked before and we've looked after. This crowd, as we will see, is excited about Jesus's rule, but without repentance. They want his spectacular reign without the shame. They are hearing some of what Jesus has said about himself, but they are not hearing everything Jesus said about himself. They are selectively hearing the Bible and they are selectively hearing the Lord. And I don't know about you, But I can relate with that. Well, we've come to the moment we've all been waiting for. We've followed Jesus on his ride in. We've taken a look back and a look ahead. Now let's take a look at the next verse. What exactly Jesus does on entry. Because the crowd is cheering and shouting and red carpet and branches and cloaks. And sacrifice and obedience and honor. And Hosanna in the highest. And the next verse. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. In other words, Jesus enters the temple. He has a look around and then he goes to bed. That's Jesus's grand entrance. There's a little bit of suspense here. That's not what we would have thought for the arrival of heaven's king to to his city. But the camera narrows to Jesus alone by verse 11. And it's quiet in verse 11, and it's late in verse 11. And Jesus looks around. What do you think he was thinking? What was he seeing? What was he planning? What will it be like when he makes his presence known in his city? And he heads out and he checks in for the night. You'd almost think 11 was a throwaway verse. Like, Did we really need the little in and out? He's going to come to the temple next week. And that's a famous scene as well that you may be familiar with. Did we really need this little like in and out at night? Yeah, we do. Jesus is going to make three entrances to the temple. He's going to make an entrance this Sunday, which you just did, in which it's quiet and late and he looks around and he goes home. Jesus left his disciples in his suspense. Mark leaves us in suspense. Next week, he's going to come and he's going to raise hell. And I mean that figuratively. And I mean that literally. Heaven's king raises hell will be the title of the sermon. So just a heads up. And there is an appropriate expression, uh, context for that expression. Hopefully that will help you to read next week's passage even better. So he's going to come back next week. And he's going to draw out. He's going to draw out the opposition to him. He will do something in the temple. And then he'll come back to the temple a third time. And that will trigger a series of debates. I guess it's the season for debates. Just two though. There will be four debates Jesus will have. With the religious leaders, or at least I shall say four different topics, and they'll all be in person. And we'll spend four different weeks on those four different topics: debate one, debate two, debate three, debate four. And then we're very close downhill from there to Jesus' passion, his suffering, and his and his death. Just to give you a sense of where we're at in the book and in. And in the series, the question for us in the moment is what does the temple have to do with his kingly rule? Because he's coming as king, but he's gone to his temple, not the palace. He's gone to the temple, not the throne. What does the temple have to do with his rule? And getting the answer to that question right makes the difference between a Christian and somebody who's just vaguely familiar with the Bible and isn't saved. And getting that question right for you in the coming weeks, what is the relationship of Jesus' temple, the temple to his throne will unlock the whole Bible and heaven for you if you can get it. Keep your ears open. And how is this good news for us? That Jesus showed up quiet at night, laying some plans to get something done in the temple. It is good news for this reason. Because there is no enjoying the benefits of Jesus' rule and his kingdom apart from the forgiveness of sins. There is no enjoying Jesus in a relationship with him as king and subject apart from True worship. This is what the temple is about. The temple is the hotspot of God's presence in the world. And it's corrupt. And the priesthood is corrupt. In other words, this crowd can't really tell because their eyes are blind. The people in the temple can't tell because they're spiritually famished and they don't believe. But there's no way to God right now. And if Jesus comes as king to rule... That's not going to be good news for anybody. So Jesus makes a stop at the temple because Jesus has work to do on the way to God. He has work to do in providing a way back to the father. There's no rule without forgiveness. There's no enjoying the benefits of the kingdom apart from worship. He will open the door to heaven for us. So as we landed here in the next few minutes, some reflections, the crowd that we watched walk into Jerusalem, the crowd got it right and the crowd got it wrong. The crowd got it right and that Jesus really is the answer to the world's problems and to our problems. He is. They got it wrong and that they did not fully apprehend the nature of the problem. Or our true problem, which is sin and guilt, which is why he needs to make a stop at the temple. And we've got to fix the way to God and out of our sin and out of our guilt. They were right in that Jesus is our salvation. Hosanna and the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They were just wrong in their understanding of the type of salvation that he brings For that crowd, they were excited about the kingdom of their father, David, and Jesus on an earthly throne over a temporal kingdom. They had a national vision. They had a merely earthly political vision of Roman oppression being removed, Israel being restored as a kind of national political entity. Their vision of what Jesus would come to do was so small. They were right in that they had high expectations for Jesus. But they were wrong in that they did not expect him to come lowly and humble to save. They were right in that they expected triumph and that his coming would be victorious. But they were wrong in that they did not expect Jesus' entry to be dangerous. And that's what's missing in their words and in the spirit of chapter 11. Jesus is of one mind on his path. They're celebrating his victory, but they don't know the way there. They were right and that Jesus is king. They were wrong and that Jesus is not exactly the kind of king they are or we are used to. So brothers and sisters, let us be careful this November, shall we? Let us be careful. You know, I'm praying for you that you would be vigilant, energetic, and faithful as citizens and neighbors and as Christians this November. But let us put all this in context, shall we? So let me ask you a few questions. And some of you will need this more and differently than others. Who are your people? Who are your people? Who do you identify with most closely and most personally and most affectionately and with the most common ground? Not every political leader, or party platform is equal. But they are all earthly leaders and earthly platforms. And you and I, friends, have a heavenly king and eternal promises. And this is the people that believes in those. This is the people that comes under this book every Sunday. So who are your people? Who are you most aligned with? Where is your passion? That's another question for you. Are your passions in proper proportion? What are you most excited about? Oh, there are lots of things to unseat us emotionally these days. What are you most eager for? What future are you hoping in? Where is your passion? Who are your people? Where is your passion? And what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Is it to save America? Again, be faithful citizens, please. It's a serious matter. It's a great privilege, self-governance, and it's a responsibility as citizen kings in this arrangement we have. Steward it well or lose it. But what is your purpose ultimately, friend? For what purpose does Jesus have you here? To save an earthly nation or to see sinners saved from their sin and from their guilt. You know, from time to time on a Sunday morning, I'll learn that someone has passed, a family member has died, a friend has died. And sometimes I'll learn that they were with us on a Sunday a year ago or, or for a stretch of months. And it always sobers me up. Friends, you might be here yourself With a month left to go. You could be sitting next to somebody with a week left to go. So what is your purpose? To save a nation or to save sinners? Who are your people? Where is your passion? What is your purpose? I think those three questions could do a lot of work for us. So just jot them down. They're not too hard to remember, I hope. And hopefully they'll help you when you're praying. So let's be careful this November. Hey, let's also be careful with our Bibles because there are some lessons here for us from the example of the crowd. Let's be careful not to read our Bibles for only the parts that we like. Like, we like a triumphant leader, Jesus, but we don't like repentance and shame. We like Jesus on the path to the cross, but we don't like the path of the cross. We like triumph, but we don't like danger. We like calls to come, and we like to call people to come, just not to carry their crosses. So let's be careful about how we read our Bibles, not for only the parts that we like, not any one part in isolation. Easy enough it is, isn't it, to read this chapter or this paragraph we've been in this morning and miss the point? And think that we have here maybe an example of exuberant praise in which to join. When actually we have a warning of a crowd that took part of Jesus' call and not, and not the whole. Because only a chapter before, Jesus is speaking about the shame and the cross. And it's in one ear and out the other. So let's not read our Bibles in isolation, parts from the whole. And let's not read their Bibles and miss the gospel. Jesus gets on a colt here that has never been ridden and that is significant. It's animals in the context of worship that would have never been ridden. This is a colt, a donkey fit for a king who will himself be a sacrifice. This is a ride in to Jerusalem on the occasion Approaching Passover for one who will himself be the Passover lamb. Don't miss the gospel and be encouraged here that as we look on the page and we see Jesus celebrated by men and women who will abandon him because they don't fully understand or accept Jesus for all that he is glory and shame, the cross before the crown. But be encouraged that as we have sung, beneath the cross of Jesus, even you and I who have gotten it wrong and celebrated his triumph and cowered at his shame and haven't shown up for the whole deal, even you and I have a place to stand beneath the cross. He on the cross took our shame and he didn't hit eject from his plan when he was all alone and abandoned by his disciples sometime later we'll get to that no he died there on the cross for us and he paid for our sins all of our Jesus abandoning sins all of our silly preoccupation with our place in the kingdom and he died in order to be raised that you and I might be raised from the dead spiritually even before physically so that we might not be the people who take him halfway but can actually take the whole thing. We believe the whole thing and we follow him into the hardest places. Some of you are texting with some of our supported missionaries and the harder parts of the world. And that's a good practice for them to encourage them to be faithful on the path Jesus has called them to. But it's also good for you and me because we need to know the kinds of things that Jesus calls us to. So keep that up where it's going on let's read our bibles not in part but in whole not in isolation but the whole thing and let us not miss the gospel in it let's pray father we thank you that there is a cross before the crown because if there was a crown without a cross there would be no salvation for us But only judgment, we might be caught celebrating the arrival of Heaven's King, expecting Him to serve our mere earthly, political, temporal, national purposes. Father, we do confess that even in the course of our faithfulness as citizens and as Christians and neighbors, in our political processes that we have often, we have often viewed Jesus from the place of our political moment, rather than viewing our political moment from the place where Jesus sits at your right hand. And we have allowed our politics to shape our, our understanding of Jesus and His purposes. And we have made his purposes so small and petty. And we are, and when we do that in danger, Father, as you know, and as we're warned from this passage, of fleeing when following Jesus comes at a cost. And so we pray to see our moment, to see our whole lives, and to see the whole of life from Jesus' position at your right hand, risen and reigning one who has taken a cross before he has taken his crown. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.